Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. When the 45th President of the United States gets down to work on January 21, 2017, the new Commander-in-Chief will face life-or-death decisions that will shape America's role in the Middle East for years to come. In this podcast series, Washington Institute scholars explore those historic challenges. As former high-level officials in Democratic and Republican administrations, our experts know the issues, the stakes, the leaders, and the players on the ground. Join us as we explore the Middle East 2017 challenges and choices. It's important to look for opportunities to reassert American power. Fairly or not, the rest of the world believes that the Obama administration was hesitant to use it, was a kind of reluctant superpower, and allowed vacuums to emerge, and others have filled those vacuums, and not in a way that contributes to stability and progress. Today, we'll hear from Ambassador Dennis Ross, a veteran of five presidential administrations who served as a senior advisor to Presidents Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. Today, he is the William Davidson Distinguished Fellow and Counselor at the Washington Institute. After this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. Between Election Day and Inauguration Day, the next president is going to have about two and a half months to put together an administration and prepare to take office and lead American policy. What are the decisions that the next president will have to prepare to make at the start of the next administration? It seems like two and a half months is a long time, but it's not when you consider everything that has to, to be done. A new president has to figure out what's the decision-making structure going to be, who are the key appointments going to be, uh, and what are the main challenges and priorities that the president's going to have. Does the president decide to create a set of near-term priorities? Does the president have a set of strategic priorities? What would he or she want to have achieved by the end of a four-year term? And how? Uh, what's the process going to be in terms of evaluating a readjustment or a revalidation or a course direction. Uh, all these things have to be part of what a president does, and that time goes by very quickly. So depending upon does the president come in with a set of 100-day initiatives, you have a set of domestic priorities, you have a set of national security priorities. Some of the priorities aren't ones that you will assign. They'll be imposed on you. You know, There's no question, for example, in the Middle East, Syria is going to hit the next president very hard. Russia, I think, is trying very hard to depopulate Aleppo. That means you're talking about what may be a couple hundred thousand refugees. Uh, Is that going to be the very first thing that confronts a new president? My guess is probably. Uh, And what are the choices there? And deciding it unilaterally doesn't make a lot of sense. You need to do this in concert with others in the region and also with the Europeans because the refugees, they'll be pushing to go there. So it's a, it's a, a difficult, challenging issue where the options aren't very good. Uh, and at this point, uh, I don't think the incoming president can count on the Obama administration to do very much to make it uh, a simpler set of challenges. Historically, the, the administrations that have developed uh, a doctrine, a strategic uh, framework that carries the president's name, those those statements, those policies have usually come fairly late into the first four years. So at the start of an administration, is it wiser to 
to uh, look for a muddle through strategy? Or should uh, an administration start the ground attempting to answer the big picture strategic questions? You know, I think it's much more important to establish what the administration itself feels it should be aiming for. What should it try to achieve over time? I'm a big believer that you do what it, what is real policy planning. Policy planning is creating a set of guideposts for where you want to be. The reason I say that is because the essence of good policy planning is having a clear enough set of objectives in mind so that what you do in the near term is actually working and moving you towards those objectives. It's not undercutting them. Frequently, you can be taking near-term decisions based on pressures that actually lead you away where you want to go. So the idea of trying to come up with a with a you know, an overarching theme, uh, I think, should be derivative. First, you should establish what your objectives are going to be. And then you can determine whether there's a, a, a theme that ties all these together. It was easy at certain times. The containment principle seemed to provide a perfect kind of catchphrase for defining what you were going to do and how you should establish your priorities and how you should organize everything in line with it. The problem with one simple catchphrase is a lot of times uh, it's too general, uh, it encompasses too much, uh, and it basically disguises or, in a sense, distracts you from what may be different sets of, of challenges that can't be captured effectively with one phrase. Containment helped to produce Vietnam because the idea was you had to, you had to basically counter and block the, the Soviets everywhere. But that assumed that there was one brand of communism that captured all. Well, it turned out that the Vietnamese were quite different, and there was also a Sino-Soviet split. Looking for a catchphrase to define uh, a doctrine, I think, is probably something that is less important than having a clear set of priorities about what's important. I mean, if I were shaping, if I were giving advice to the next administration, one of the things I would say in foreign policy is it's important to look for opportunities to reassert American power. Fairly or not, the rest of the world believes that the Obama administration was hesitant to use it, was a kind of reluctant superpower, uh, and allowed vacuums to emerge, and others have filled those vacuums, uh, and not in a way that contributes to stability and progress. So if I were looking for a theme, it would be the reassertion of American power and looking for opportunities to do it in a place like the Middle East, making a statement. Uh, in Syria, for example, if, in fact, the process of what the Russians are doing is continuing, making it clear that there's uh, first privately to the Russians, and then if they continue to act that way, making it clear that we will assert American power. Right? Taking, out the, taking out all the Assad airfields with standoff strikes uh, would demonstrate clearly there, should be, there is a consequence for engaging in war crimes. In in your book, uh, you quote uh, former Ambassador Stephen Sustanovich, who has written that almost every new president since Truman has believed that the world had changed in some fundamental way that his predecessor either totally misunderstood or failed to manage. Although that has often led to overcorrections in the past, are there any grounds for a significant change in American Middle East strategy at the start of the 45th president's term? Yes, there clearly are. Uh, one is to signal unmistakably that we get the nature of the Iranian threat the way many of our traditional partners in the region get it. Again, there's a perception, whether it's right or not, nonetheless, the perception exists that the Obama administration was inclined to acquiesce 
in what the Iranians were doing or was so concerned about not provoking them because of the Iran nuclear deal uh, that they went along or didn't really try to stop or counter what the Iranians were doing uh, throughout the region, which is highly destabilizing and threatening to most of our traditional partners. So one thing that is, I think, critical is to look again to not with words, because at this point, uh, it's the, our problem is there's a gap between what we say and what we do. What needs to be done is there should be some practical steps that we take. I have suggested, for example, immediately offering to do contingency planning with, uh, with the Gulf states, uh, with Egypt and Jordan, with the Israelis, to focus on developing a specific set of options to counter the Iranian use of Shia militias, which is as destabilizing uh, an element in terms of the state structure in the Middle East as anything else that's going on with ISIS. On the question of the state structure, um, it, it, it has seemed like the, the the breakdown of traditional Westphalian states is only accelerating the Middle East. Can can the state structure as we have known it be salvaged, put back together, or are we looking at having to build a new system in that region? Well, I think we should be focused on how we can shore up the state structure, because when you have failed or failing states, you create great operational space expansive operational space for non-state actors, typically terrorist organizations, to be operating. So you want to deny that operational space. You don't want to you don't want to see it proliferate. So I do think we have to be worried about shoring up the state structure. The question is which states are most sustainable and which ones may not be. Can Syria be put back together again as a unified state? I highly doubt it. Uh, the Assad regime is probably going to survive in a truncated Syrian state because Russia and Iran have been committed to ensuring that and Russia has changed the balance of power on the ground to make that a reality, not just a theory. But the Syrian military is a fraction of what it was at the start of the war. Uh, and it has no means to, to retake territory. So you're going to see a partition of Syria in all likelihood. The focus should be on what you can do to at least try to create some kind of ceasefire there, some kind of enduring uh, partition. The question in Iraq is, can you create an enduring federal structure? Because the idea that uh, that the, the Sunnis will, won't, in a sense, support a son of ISIS after ISIS is defeated uh, depends on whether or not they feel they get a piece of the pie, whether or not they think they're going to be oppressed, whether they think they're going to be denied any rights whether there's going to be any inclusion. Uh, the Kurds have basically, because of, of ISIS, have carved out much more uh, of autonomy and autonomous presence uh, and more territory as well. I think the key here is going to be, again, can you come up with some kind of sharing of revenue? Can you come up with some kind of decentralization when it comes to power? Can there be more local governance and if you do that, then I think Iraq as such can survive. Can Yemen survive as a unified state? Probably, again, not very likely. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a time when you had a North Yemen and a South Yemen, uh, and you may be returning to that. Can Libya survive uh, as a state? Hard to say. It's more a collection right now of, of tribes and militias than it is of a unified state. The, the, the government that is recognized internationally uh, holds sway over very little territory. So I think those are the areas where you might concentrate on, on focusing 
how you manage what exists as a state. In almost every other place, actually, the states are fairly well holding together, even if there's a tension and a challenge. Part of what we ought to be doing is figuring out how to shore things up where we can. One opportunity exists, and that is Saudi Arabia is carrying out a national transformation plan. There's never been a successful Arab model of development, which helps to explain the level of instability in the region, the level of competition over who is going to be defining the shape of the region and who is going to be the, quote, hero who delivers the Middle East out of its backwardness. There's been a kind of constant competition, a constant stream of pretenders to play that role. But that's because there's never been a successful model of development. Now, if the Saudis create one, that has longer-term implications for stability within the region. Is there anything the United States can do to help the Saudi uh, economic transition? There's a great deal they can do. And by the way, they, when, when I was recently in Saudi Arabia, leading a group for the Washington Institute, one of the striking things was one of the, one of the senior officials said to us, welcome to our revolution disguised as economic reform. So they're carrying out, it's, the title of their, of their reform plan is National Transformation, and it's, it is, in fact, a national transformation. It depends on doing a number of very complicated things. For example, they want to take their national oil company, Aramco, which is literally worth trillions, and they want to arrange an initial public offering. They want to take it public, which has very far-reaching implications. Because it means they have to have transparency on the books. It means there has to be a kind of accountability, something you haven't seen before. So given the complicated nature of taking something as large as Aramco, even if it's only a, a small portion of it, a public, there is something that we could we can be helping in terms of technical assistance for how to how to how to arrange the IPO, number one. Number two, they want to create a deeper strategic a cooperative relationship as it relates to commercial relations in the future. So there's a lot we could be doing in terms of public-private partnerships to help shape investment there, which is very much what they want. They want outside investment. I contrast that, for example, with Iran. Iran is this country with 80 million people, a very educated public, uh, and a sense that once the nuclear deal was done, that you know, those like Rouhani could open up the country. Well, they can't open up the country, Not maybe not because they don't want to, but because the Supreme Leader doesn't want it, because the Revolutionary Guard doesn't want it, because the ideology of the Islamic Republic doesn't permit it. And so they have an ideology that actually precludes significant economic advance and development. They, in a sense, create the internal impediments to the kind of external investment uh, that could open up the country because the Supreme Leader fears opening up the country. Well, the Saudi case uh, highlights something else that you wrote about in Doom to Succeed. That is the growing convergence of Israeli and Sunni Arab interests. But many in the American policymaking establishment seem to share the assumption that the Palestinian issue prevents Arab states from turning shared interests into actual cooperation with Israel. How can Washington best help our regional partners to act on their converging security interests? It is true that there are converging interests, and it is true that the level of cooperation below the radar screen is very real and also unprecedented. Now, the problem is, in terms of taking advantage of that to turn it into something broader and more open, which could actually be beneficial. You know, water is a big issue in this region. One country has solved its water problem. That country is called Israel. It could do wonders uh, 
to help out others in the region if they could engage in more overt cooperation. The Palestinian issue does preclude that at this point because Arab leaderships feel vulnerable to their publics uh, over an issue that is seen as an issue of injustice. So there are things we can do to build on the quiet cooperation, which is tangible. It's not theoretical. Uh, we're actually presently excluded from it. So we should we should actually be prepared to offer, again, uh, three-way planning discussions that could, again, be kept discreet. That would allow us to build and make more of the private cooperation. Uh, and then we, in the context of that, we could be looking for opportunities where some of this could be portrayed as functional cooperation that serves the interest of the local Arab state. Jordan has done a 10-year deal with Israel on natural gas. Now, it has produced demonstrations, public demonstrations against it. So it shows it's not a simple thing to do. But if that becomes something that's sustainable, you can look for other opportunities uh, for functional, purely functional cooperation, some of which doesn't have to be broadcast, some of which maybe as a way of, of making it something that is more doable, maybe it can be done with an American partner, uh, water cooperation. Maybe there's an American partner that is the focal point uh, that in a sense shields what is actually three-way cooperation, uh, but the focal point or the visible part of it is more of an American connection rather than an Israeli connection. This allows you to move from, uh, from not being able to take steps uh, because of their exposure to being able to take them and do more to socialize an environment uh, that allows it to emerge uh, over time. Back to the Palestinian issue, though, and our relations with uh, the Arab states, American administrations have often acted on the assumption that the Palestinian issue was a top priority for our Arab partners. And you write that that's in part because that's what Arab leaders and diplomats have told their American counterparts. Right. Is the Palestinian issue a decisive priority for the Sunni Arab states? And if so, or if not, what are those government's top priorities? One of the things I show in the book is really from the Truman administration until today, there's been a presumption about what, the, what matters to the Arabs, and that presumption has been consistently wrong. Uh, what matters to the Arab leaders is their security and their survival. The threats to their security and survival have not come from Israel. The threats have come from their rivals within the region. Uh, so whether it was Nasser, the Saudis built something called the Islamic Summit, in the 1950s and 60s to try to counteract and compete with Nasser. Nasser and the Arab socialists after him, the Baathis, meaning people like Saddam Hussein, they were secular. Uh, and the counterpoint to them was frequently uh, an Islamic counterpoint. But that was the focal point of the struggle. The Palestinians have often been used as a club with which one Arab leader would hit the other over the head with but not because they were actually trying to resolve the conflict. It's not to say they wouldn't like to see it go away, but it was always something used against them. It wasn't something they were, in effect, using. And frequently, it was the one thing they could unify on if it produced when there were wars with Israel. There obviously were wars with Israel, but the last real interstate war with Israel, you, you can't count Lebanon, uh, you can't count these asymmetrical wars, was 73. So it's a long time since you've seen that kind of an interstate war. Uh, and so I think, you know, part of the issue here is that the Palestinian issue still has a resonance on the on the Arab street in no small part because Arab leaders would divert attention away from their own failings to focus on, to keep the focus on the Palestine issue. I once recall having a, 
conversation with a leading Arab foreign minister at the time talking about why reform within his country made sense. He said, well, we can't reform until we solve the Palestinian issue. I said, well, what does that have to do with making yourself stronger? It was obviously just an excuse. So there's a legacy here. What's interesting about what the Saudis are doing is they're focused on what they need to do internally. They have two priorities today. Internally, it's modernization. Externally, it's countering the Iranians. The Israelis are not part of that. The Palestinians are not part of that. Would they like the would they like the Palestinian issue to go away? For sure. But are they going to expend a lot of capital on it? Not when they have other priorities. Now, it isn't to say that there might not be an opportunity now to create some kind of air of cover, which is necessary because the Palestinians on their own can't negotiate. They're incapable of negotiating now, partly because they're simply too weak, they're too divided, their sense of grievance is too great, and they, there isn't the capacity to rationalize negotiating, much, late, much less making concessions towards the Israelis. So they need an Arab cover for anything that might be done towards the Israelis. But ironically, the Israelis also need an Arab cover for what they might do towards the Palestinians because there's such disbelief on the Israeli side that any concession to the Palestinians will yield anything. So if it's going to yield something, it has to come from the Arabs because they don't, Israeli body politic doesn't believe they can get anything from the Palestinians. Recent presidents, uh, both at the start and at the conclusions of their terms, seem to have at least been tempted to see a big push on Arab-Israeli uh, relations deal-making as uh, a statement issue or a legacy issue. Would you advise the transition team for the next president to uh, look for an early opportunity to put that back on the front burner? Or would you be advising more of a, a, a hold back, hands off process, wait and see? No, I would put it on the front burner. But there's a difference between putting it on the front burner and launching big, high profile initiatives that are bound to fail or doomed to, to fail as opposed to doomed to succeed. The reason I say that is because you look at the Obama administration, the last two and a half years, they've done nothing. They pretty much walked away from it. You cannot create a binary choice where either we're going to solve this conflict or we're going to do nothing. When you do nothing, you add to the disbelief of both sides and you make it harder and harder to ever do anything. So it should be a front burner issue in the sense that we care about it. We're prepared to make an effort on it. But the effort is going to be a practical effort. The effort is going to be a low key effort. The effort is not going to be one characterized by launching big initiatives that have no chance of success. Uh, the you know there should be conversations with the Israeli, Palestinian, and Arab leaders. There should be a, a commitment to focusing on practical steps on the ground. There should be an effort to see if there's a way to broaden the character of diplomacy so it's no longer strictly bilateral between Israelis and Palestinians because a, a strictly bilateral model can't work. But a broader model doesn't mean international initiatives where. The, the judgment of the international community is a substitute for what the parties do, but it is bringing the Arabs into this. When I say a strictly don't have it a strictly bilateral model, I mean we need to broaden this model of negotiations to include the Arabs. Uh, and that has a chance of, of reinforcing positive steps on the ground. Uh, if Israel can take certain steps towards the Israelis, what, would, what might they get from the Arab states in return? Uh, these are, this isn't something you should broadcast. It's something you should probe in, in private. If I were doing what I used to do, I would go to the Arabs and say, what would you need from the Israelis on the Palestinian issue to be prepared to take a number of public steps towards the Israelis to show 
that there's a process of normalization because Israel would be able to show this as a payoff. Uh, and I would go to these Israelis and say, what kind of practical steps uh, of normalization with the, with the Arab states would you need to be seen in public for you to take what would be some meaningful steps towards the Palestinians? And I would go to the Palestinians and say, All right, what are the kind of steps you could either take or avoid taking in the context of if the falling were happening? So this is the way you should we should shape an approach. Uh, and and that, I think, would give us a chance to launch a diplomacy that actually makes a difference on the ground and can begin to restore a sense of possibility. The greatest single problem we face today between Israelis and Palestinians is a loss of hope, a loss of any sense of possibility, the growth of cynicism and disbelief. You've been in the room with presidents and secretaries when some of the biggest decisions of our time have been made. What are those meetings like and how do you prepare for them? Well, first, when you have those meetings, usually when I've been a part of them, usually I've been responsible for establishing what the agenda is, what the issues are, how we're going to discuss them, laying out the pros and cons in a piece of paper in advance of the meeting. So it's you go into these meetings with a structure already there because the whole point is this is supposed to be decision making. Sometimes there are meetings where you have, you know, where you'll have high level meetings that are not decision making. There's an effort just to sort of say, let's try to understand what it is our stakes are or what is at stake, what our goals should be uh, and what are uh, some of the means we have available to try to deal with it. That's a different kind of meeting. Uh, It's a less sort of stressful meeting. There are some meetings that are crisis driven. You know, they're called because something's just happened. Even then, I've been in a position where I've been asked on a quick basis to lay out what the issues are. The environment may be a stressful one, but I've rarely seen people express the stress in the meetings. These, you know, obviously it depends on the personalities. I have a personality that is more low-key, and so, you know, I tend to be pretty analytical. Uh, and most of the time with presidents and secretaries, that's what they most appreciate. They don't want someone who's exhibiting a kind of great unease or anxiety because that just feeds theirs. So you actually would you'd be surprised that these are meetings, even though the stakes are high and these, the overall atmosphere is a stressful one. There's a kind of calmness as you go through what the real choices are. Now, sometimes if there's a big debate if there's uh, someone who feels quite passionate and feels that they might be losing that debate, then the meetings themselves become more emotional. And I've seen that as well. Uh, But again, a lot depends on who the president is. If the president is a kind of calming influence or is someone who wants everybody to sort of take a step back because you can't think clearly if you're, you know, if you become emotional, I've often said anger is an emotion. Anger is emotion. It's not a policy. And you have to make policies. So um, it's not that I never used anger as a tool, but that was in negotiations and it was never. And I did say it. there were times when I was quite passionate. And when I was there, I'll give you one example. When after four bombs in nine days uh, in the end of February, the beginning of March of 1996, uh, I went over to convince President Clinton, then President Clinton, that if we were going to salvage what Rabin had been trying to do, this is after the assassination, three months after it, he needed to go there. 
we needed to bring everybody in the region together. Uh, and this was an election year and every one of his political advisors was blowing up at me, yelling at me and saying, are you crazy? What are you trying to do to the president? He can't go and do this. And I was pretty passionate in terms of laying out what was at stake. Uh, and the president had a choice to make. He could either help try to preserve a process that we that was promoting peace and we were part of, uh, or he could stay here and let the politics dictate the future of the region. Uh, and I said, pretty clear what will happen if you allow that. And he decided with me. So, you know, there are those moments where passion is also called for. Ambassador Dennis Ross is the William Davidson Distinguished Fellow and Counselor at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. A senior official in four administrations under both Republican and Democratic presidents, he served as point man on the peace process for Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, and as Middle East advisor in President Barack Obama's first term. His book, Doomed to Succeed, the U.S.-Israel Relationship from Truman to Obama, is out in paperback now. Ambassador Ross, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been Near East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.